We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. I love going to the barbershop to get a fresh cut. You feel like the best you, your confidence skyrockets, and you're ready to take on anything. You can have that feeling every day for less than 99 cents a day with Scotch Porter. They've got the best assortment of beard, face, hair, body, and shave products that give you that fresh out of the barbershop, pampered, confident feel. I've been using this stuff and it's fantastic. Look smart, get clean, and be sharp with your first box for free. Just pay shipping. Head to scotchporter.com slash Torre. That's S-C-O-T-C-H-P-O-R-T-E-R.com slash Torre. T-O-U-R-E. Derek Johnson is the president of the NAACP. I'm curious about who he is as a person, but also what's the NAACP's role in modern America? What are they trying to do? One of their big issues is voter turnout. They want to get people to the polls on Tuesday, November 6th to vote for whoever you want. The NAACP isn't telling you who to vote for. But there's a lot of amazing black candidates on the ballot in Georgia with Stacey Abrams, in Florida with Andrew Gillum, in Maryland with Ben Jealous, and in other places. Derek asked that we put this out on Monday ahead of voting day so he could amplify the message, please vote like your life depends on it, because it does. So let's get to it. It's Derek Johnson, the president of the NAACP. On Torre Show. What's the biggest problem facing Black America right now? Apathy. Uh, I think we apathy. Apathy. You know, in a democracy, our voters are currency, and too many of us see government as being the villain, as opposed to seeing government as under our stewardship and ownership. And if we take control of governance in ways in which we can direct policy to improve our quality of life, then we will have a more productive quality of life. But far too often, we see ourselves as victims of government, as opposed to owners of government. I think that's fair, and I think we've seen over the last several decades the image of government go down in a lot of people's eyes. I think our parents understood government coming in and helping black people and saving black people from segregation, and various, but now we don't quite see that in the post-Watergate era. But I look at something like 
the war on drugs as the biggest problem facing black people, Symptoms. right? It, I mean, and all and all the things that splay out from the war on drugs mm-hmm. that you cannot live with your family anymore because you got arrested for a nickel bag that you know because you've been away you're away from your family for two years or something like that because of just something small the over policing of our communities another symptom yeah I mean what do you think about that I think those are definitely problems but both of those things are driven by public policy public policy is created by individuals who are selected by voters and we have to make sure we hold individuals accountable not just simply by how we vote but throughout the, their 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 time in office we go to the polls out of urgency, but we don't maintain agendas from the local up to ensure that people are complying with our agenda. And I, but as a result of that, the symptoms become the policy and how it's implemented in our community. Mass incarcerations, poor education systems, the lack of delivery of the quality services for the tax dollars we put into, into the system. I feel like black people cluster within the Democratic Party, and that gives us a certain power in that we are able to elect certain people like you saw in Alabama and other situations. Um, If we were up for grabs, then they would pay even less attention to us. But a lot of people talk about the Democratic Party seems to take us for granted, especially take black women for granted, even though black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. Do you think that they're taking black folks for granted? I think that's a deficit mindset. Political parties are vehicles for agendas. They don't define agendas. Individuals put their agenda into on those platforms and then hold those parties accountable. Far too often we talk about what the party's doing to us. It's like the tail wagging the dog. We should be defining the agenda of any party we are part of. And as a result of that, the party would cater to our interests because we're driving the train. But for a lot of people, policing violence is the core problem. And they don't necessarily see a way that voting can change that. Well, and, 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 and I'm I'm fully with you. I want yeah, people no, no, I to vote. It. But how do we deal with the policing violence challenge that we have going on? Well, the police are accountable to who and who holds them accountable. First of all, district attorneys. If you get a good district attorney, that district attorney can hold the police department accountable. The mayor that puts put in office who appoint the police chiefs. Those are the things we need to look at. What are the mechanisms of power? How do people come to be where they are in this democracy? And how do we get control of the democracy so it can reflect our needs and interests? Oh, okay, but that still doesn't deal with the more emergency moment of the policing violence crises that we have seen over and over and over. I mean... You're talking sort of at a 4,000-foot level. Let me give you ground level right now, right? So you look at Ferguson, Missouri. You had an issue of police violence, and as a result of that, black man laying dead, and no one held accountable. But in Jackson, Mississippi, where I live, you had an incidence of racial terrorism. Individuals ran over Craig James Anderson with their car, and as a result of that, we had an African-American mayor. We had an African-American police chief. We had an African-American judge. All of those individuals have been brought to justice, and all of them are sitting in jail today. And that happened because people organized, put uh, folks in place who they can hold accountable. And as a result of that, justice was found. We have to get control of the mechanisms of government so that it can reflect our interests and our needs. You are nonpartisan. Absolutely. But if black folks show up and vote Republican, 
Do you think that that is helpful to the black community? What's the agenda they're voting for? How do they develop that agenda? Well, we, but it, we know what the Republican agenda is. That, it's not, it's not a so abstract. So it's not about the party. It's the agenda. It's the platform. But we know what the Republican platform is. Who informed it? Are we informing that platform? Have we developed that platform? No, the, the, platform, the platform that they have right at, now. At, right not now, a hypothetical. It, it, the current it, Republican much, platform. Much of what's in that platform is not in our interest, just like right. much of what's in the Democratic Party. Some of that is not in our interest. But we have to define our interests much more creatively and be really focused on how to deliver upon that. What do you mean define our interests more creatively? We have to be very clear. What is it that we want as a community? How do we achieve that? And what are the vehicles to get there? See, the reason why we're no longer Republicans is because there was a time certain when the Democratic Party in the South excluded participation of African-Americans, when close to 70% of African-Americans lived in the South. So the only way we can get in the game was to challenge through the Mississippi Democratic Party with Fannie Lou Hamer and Aaron Henry. And as a result of that, they went in there and they challenged the system forcing the National Party to remove segregationist plaques from the state parties. And as a result of that, we began to needle in some of our agendas. We lost track soon after that. We didn't keep up and keep focused with our agenda, how we was going to move it, how we was going to hold elected officials accountable. When you come to my community and you need my vote, what are we getting in exchange and how do we track it over time? Mm -hmm. That's what we need to start doing much more uh, 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 in a much more focused way and be really, really sophisticated with that. I, I hear you almost wanting to say no, but you can't. I no, mean, to what? To to if we showed up and voted Republican, that, which we know is not in the no, interest of not. the community, As that's com- not helpful. Right, what I'm saying is so, uh, uh, that, that cake don't taste well for us. <laughs> that's not the cake I'm talking about. I'm going to get to the ingredients, how the cake came to being. See, we start at, you starting at the end of the production. We need to be in the production so we can produce. To change the, the way the parties think from the beginning. No, to not only change how the way the parties think, to make sure our platform, our interest is a key ingredient. And if we remove it, it don't work. I'm curious how you got to be uh, the president of the NAACP. How did that happen? You know, I'm curious about that myself. (laughs) (laughs) This show is partly about success and how it's achieved. Mm -hmm. So just if somebody was saying like, well, I would like to get to the head of my board or the presidents of some other organization that is also similarly august. So is it a sort of thing of like, proving to the board that you are a person of seriousness who, you know, has a broad array of talents and cares deeply about the organization? Like, what are the qualities that are important to getting the others in the group to saying he should be the president? Well, it all depends on the organization. For me, I just simply did the work. I spent, uh, from my time, undergrad at HBCU, Tougaloo College. Uh, I, I served as college chapter president, state youth president, went away to law school, came back, was really involved with redistricting, so supporting the Mississippi State Conference. I was elected to the uh, uh, National Board of uh, not first of all, elected as state president 
after that, then to the National Board of Directors. Now that I was pursuing titles, I simply was doing the work. And as a result of that, uh, the chair and others seen something in me that I wasn't even considering, uh, and that was to head this association. I didn't apply for the position. I wasn't pursuing a position. I didn't even lobby for this. I want to make sure that we have a vehicle in our community that can speak for African Americans across the country in ways in which is a representative body. So in a time of great ambition, you ascended without raising your hand, without saying, me, me, me. That's correct. And do you think that was part of why you were ascending? Because you weren't saying, pick me, pick me? For me, that that is what worked. For others, it may not work that way. Okay. It, it, it may be a, a full-born campaign uh, for a position once it becomes available. But for me, my success have always been, do the work. Start with the little things. Care about the people that others look over. And as a result of that, success will happen. Mm. Um, I'm curious, what are the qualities and talents that you are bringing to bear day to day? <laughs> as the I don't, I don't even know what does the president of the NAACP do all day. But what are, what are the things that you're being asked to do as you go throughout the day? You know, so I, one morning I woke up, I was like, what is, why me, right? So, <laughs> right? And I was like, we're a conglomerate. We're not just a, a traditional nonprofit organization. We have two C4s, we have two C3s, we have a for-profit arm, we have an entertainment office in Hollywood, we have a development office here, we're NGO to the United Nations. We are truly a conglomerate. But more than anything else, we are a membership-based advocacy organization, and it's a bottom-up structure. All of our local units have equal voice across the country, and those voices collectively help frame and develop an agenda that we pursue nationally. And the beautiful thing about the association, everyone around the table is equal. And I love that fact. And because of that, you, got, you have to understand and have the talent to see the richness of the total African and African-American experience and understand the difference between the African and the African-American experience and know that we represent it all so long as those, indivi those individuals are at the table. I mean, you have to be <clears throat> a diplomat. Right. Absolutely. You have to manage money. You have to direct people and inspire people. I mean, what are all the things you have to cast a vision? You have to see individuals for who they are and not determine that some people are more important than other people's. You know, I equate the NAACP to a, a black Baptist church. Okay. It is led from the pews not from the pulpit. For those of us who grew up in a Baptist church, we know that there's an annual meeting and, and the members of the church, they either elect or unelect the pastor of the church. Every member who sit in those pews are equal. That's the NAACP. It is led by the membership on the ground. And the skills necessary, primarily necessary, is to respect people. And then you build, on, you build from there. For me, because I ran a nonprofit, because I, I, I had the opportunity to go to law school, because I am really steeped in, in political movements and I've ran campaigns and many other talents I brought to the table, all of those things have come together at this moment to assist me in navigating this association at this time. When you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking? Beside the why me, are you feeling the responsibility of this historic organization, this gigantic institution? Absolutely. Are you like, 
I can get up and do it and, you know, like, are you like, I, I you know, I can conquer the day? I, I operate best when I can cast a long-term vision. For me, it's five years. The next five years is the most crucial time in this democracy. And the role African-American play at this moment is critical. It is a, it's a value proposition. Will this democracy be inclusive of our reality, or will this democracy uh, devolve into something we've seen in apartheid South, South Africa? And, and what role do the NAACP play, and how do we navigate the conversation? Well, yeah. I mean, we do seem to be devolving into something quite frightening, right? I mean, are you not frightened at the vision we see of America right now? I'm not frightened. I understand the victory that we're having. The reason why we're seeing this victory is because of the success track record we've seen of late. It may not feel like success. We're having too many young men being killed in, on the streets. We're having our, our education system dismantled in ways in which too many of our young people don't have the opportunities. But if that was uh, our failure, we wouldn't see what's taking place. We're having success because we're seeing a lot of people succeed. We're seeing more people being becoming more and more accomplished. And as a result of that, with a shift in demographics, in a democracy, your vote is your currency. It is our now responsibility to chart a course to show, one, we can govern. Two, we can provide for those who need us the most. But three, we can do it collectively. I don't see the rise of Trumpism and success for black people. I mean, I know there are... No, 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 no don't, don't misunderstand me. The rise of Trumpism is a problem. But there's what, why is there a rise in Trumpism? Because opposition see our successes, therefore they're trying to put forth a counterweight to that. Every sure. action have a reaction. Sure. So don't ever say, I think that's, that's our but success. The, but they are, they are succeeding because they are afraid of our success, right? I mean, we know why people quite often see race as a zero-sum game that they are losing. So if they have Barack Obama, then we must respond with something else because we have lost something. And... When I feel like when I see Trump and the the hate crimes that are going on all over the mm -hmm. place, um, it, it definitely does not feel like we are winning. And at times it feels fairly bleak. Well, you know, it, it may feel that way. That's why you have to cash a longer vision. If you live in the now, yeah, it's bleak. I mean, think about last week, pipe bombs and mails. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, thank God that, that, that Baptist church, the doors were locked. Uh, the massacre in Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, that is bleak, but cast a longer vision. That's what I wake up in the morning with. I know what the problems are today, but what are we doing to get to the tomorrow? That's the goal. Anyone who head up an organization responsible for carrying out a mission and who who's accountable, and that's key. Too many individuals claim to be leaders of our community, but they're not accountable to anything or anyone. If we're accountable to our neighbors, and, and, and that accountability can be measured, then we can say, okay, in five years, this is where we want to go. For me, how do I transform this legacy organization, increase the technologies, provide more space for young voices, Get away from this youth versus old. Social justice is not a competition. It's an opportunity for all of our voices. And I am a vehicle to bring more voices who are of the millennial and the next generation to the table. If they use NACP as their vehicle, great. If they don't, I still support them because those are the leaders for tomorrow. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. When I was in college, of course, we studied the amazing things that the NAACP did back decades ago. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And I don't mean that as a slight. Yeah. Incredible history in this organization, right? I mean, just um, <clears throat> can the current NAACP be as seminal and important in black life as it was decades ago? So two answers that. One, should we be? Mm-hmm. And two, who say we're not? The problem with the narrative is when other people are controlling the narrative of what we're not doing, whether they're in our community or not, it truly don't tell the story. When I go to Shelby County, Tennessee, where we just won a lawsuit because that election commission was refusing to process over 20,000 voter registration applications, and we win on Monday, and people are celebrating because they know that can increase turnout, that's a victory. That's a seminal victory for that community. Mm -hmm. If I go to, to Louisville, Kentucky, and I sit in that banquet the day after the shooting, and I'm watching that community 
organized under our banner because that is the connective tissue that they have in that community for the black community, that's a victory. Who's controlling the narrative and who say we're not as seminal? Of course you're going to read the history about Charles Hamilton Houston and this huge lawsuit that we won. But how many times are we going to the Supreme Court for those type of historic victories? There are not many Supreme Court decisions of that magnitude in one's lifetime. Sure. Guys, the first thing people see is your face. And if you want to win, you got to put your best face forward. You can do that with Scotch Porter. Their subscription box has the best beard, face, hair, body, and shaving products that you need to look amazing. I've been using it. I think I look better since I started doing it, but I guess you have to ask my wife. But head over to scotchporter.com slash and get your first box completely free. Just pay shipping. If you want to cancel anytime, no BS, you can, but you won't want to because the products are fantastic. So Check it out at scotchporter.com slash That's S-C-O-T-C-H-P-O-R-T-E-R dot com slash T-O-U-R-E. You're going to look amazing. So the nature of the black community today is different, and thus the NAACP has to serve different, is going to have a different place in that community? Not necessarily. You think about the NAACP during any generation, there were always other organizations. The nature of the African-American community was evolving. You know, if you look at the period of time where I'm thinking you, you're considering, that's during the height of the black migration. That's when many of us, were, our families were leaving the South, coming north for opportunities or leaving the Caribbean looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, there were many organizations that, that rose up and they did good for that period, but they're no longer around. Mm-hmm. But NAACP, we've been around for 109 years. Why? Because we are a membership-driven operation. We're bottom-up, not top-down. We're not egocentric. It's not based on a personality. It's based on the collective whole. Naeem Magbar had the saying collective consciousness. NACP embodies that collective consciousness. And it's a unique reality that has not truly been studied, but it's the most beautiful thing in the African-American experience that we can find, that if you put an issue in front of us, some of us, we can see that issue, and we're going to do the exact same thing because we understand what's on the other side is not good for us or what's on the other side is good for us. How does your how is your job changed or shaped by the presence of Black Lives Matter? This younger to the left of you, perhaps more aggressive, more in the street organization. How does that change your space? How do who say they to the left of me? Who to say that anything else, right? <laughs> I love it. I know many of them. Before I got in this position, I was facilitating support for many of them. It's the most beautiful thing you can have. A lot of my mentors are SNCC activists. They're part of the uh, SNCC veterans. They were the Black Lives Matter movement of the late 50s and 60s. And in talking with them and listening to them, I said, you know what? This is nothing new. This is a beautiful thing. So it's our job as a matured organization is to support and foster. And at any given moment, if they come under attack, it's our job to block those attacks because we need those youth voices. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, they, they do see more... Aggressive. They should be. Why you say they should be? Because any, if you study movement, it's always intergenerational. And young people, they have less to risk. Therefore, they fear less. Right. That's a beautiful thing. That's when you get the spark necessary for movement. Right. They should be. Do you think that sometimes violence is valuable 
as a political tool. You always got to be careful with that, right? Because every action have a reaction. Can we use violence and protect ourselves at the same time? At what level do you use violence? When is it a tool and not a tool? We always have to be careful with that question. I mean, well, yeah, so what do you think? Well, you know, when you use violence as a community, the Black Panther Party is a good example. They, they profiled rifles going to the state capitol. And as a result of that, lives were destroyed because they were not prepared to, for, for the reaction. So you have to be careful with that. Uh, yes, you have to be careful. We have seen historically, especially black history, sometimes it was property violence that made people suddenly pay attention to what a certain community needed that was not getting that attention before property violence happened. And I'm never advocating violence against other human beings. So let's talk about property violence. You had the riots in Newark and Detroit and Gary. Where are those cities now? What happened after the riots? They got some attention. Ten years later, what happened to them? That's the question you always have to ask yourself. Are you prepared for the reaction for your action? I mean, sometimes when you see those moments and you see a, a, a white community that says, we need to give them something, affirmative action, something, help them out in some way so we lessen the tension a little bit. But is it long-lasting? Is it sustaining? And is it something that would benefit us for decades past that? That's the question. We always have to ask the now what question. It's easy to have the reaction, but are you prepared for the reaction? You talk a lot about the importance of voting, and of course I agree with you. Where are you in terms of protecting voting rights? We see the Republican Party erecting uh, laws all over the place, voter ID laws that are not necessary, all sorts of things that are meant surgically to cut black people off from voting. Where are you on protecting our right to vote? Well, we, we've, I just mentioned the lawsuit in, yes. in Tennessee. We were part of the lawsuit in Georgia. We're monitoring the, uh, across the country. Uh, we have always been on the, on the front line of protecting the right to vote because out of all of our partner organizations, we have the only infrastructure. We have eyes and ears across the country. We have 2,200 units in 47 states. We have active uh, uh, members in Hawaii, in Anchorage, Alaska, in Connecticut, and all the states in between. So we have always been the eyes and ears on the ground to report up. We got a problem here, send lawyers. I know, but there's a lot of problems. It, 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 it is. There's a lot of places and, where this is happening. And that's part of why we got to get control of the public policy setting you part mentioned of this. two to what you mentioned two places where you guys were successful in no, helping no, get mean, people the right to as, vote as, as, as but there's so many no, I, I, those are two recent okay. lawsuits okay. that we've done right okay. there have been many others in georgia they were going to close polling places and through our protests and advocacy we stopped that from happening all across the country in, 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 in North Carolina, we just won a Supreme Court decision dealing with redistricting in Texas, all across the country, all across the country. What is the NAACP's position on gun control and gun access? Well, you know, uh, 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 sensible gun control is, is, is we got to have it. I hunt. I enjoy hunting. I don't need an AK-47 rifle to kill a deer. Right. It, no, right? right? Sensible gun control is a must. I grew up in Detroit in the midst of the crack epidemic. I know what it means to have rampant crime because you have people with guns in their hand that real question is, how did they get those guns in their hand? Yeah. Where did it come from? You know, 
we are very clear, those of us who grew up in inner cities, the game that was being played, and then for young black men like me and yourself being stamped as a villain because somebody else was pumping drugs and guns into our communities, and we took the bait because of lack of opportunities and what we thought was limited options. Right, right. Well, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of places where selling drugs is the best economic option for most of the young men around. How do you tell all of them you can't do that? Well, you know, you it is a public policy reality. How do we can c- get control of governance so people are not demeaned in, in a way in which they feed upon their families and they are able to, to really grow opportunities so they can support their families? In a crack or drug-infested community, we really reduce individuals in the way in which they feed upon each other. Mm-hmm. And we have to come out of that. That's a public policy question that we have to solve. I know everybody who witnessed the crack epidemic from up close, mm-hmm. like you did, has those stories, has those memories of people who were admired in the community, and then next thing you know, they were struggling. Oh, man. I, yeah, you know, I, I remember watching the movie American Gangster, right? So, you know, I, I graduated high school in, in 86, and people were celebrating Frank Lewis. Lucas, I was upset because I remember being a very young child. One of the games I played was about five, six, seven years old. Who can count the most needles? That was during the heroin epidemic, right? And then we began to see that slow down. And right around 82, 83, we heard about this thing called crack. It was like, what is crack? You know, it sounded crazy. And then one guy died as a result of being on crack. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And then it seemed like within a week, it felt like the whole community was on crack. Like, what yeah. the hell just happened here? Right? So we talk about our neighborhood almost like pre-crack, post-crack. Yeah. Right? Pre-crack, there was order to the chaos. You know? You knew the weed guy over here. You knew the guys who were selling pills, prescription pills. You knew the guys who were selling heroin. And in between there, there was some order. It was a certain amount of violence, but not... No, not like not, this. Not crazy. When crack hit and it broke up, it was like the wild, wild west. I mean, it was before the lottery. You knew the numbers guy. And people had a system. It was chaotic, and it was, but it was survival. But when crack happened, it was no hard part. It was the wild, wild west. And unfortunately, many talented individuals were destroyed as a result of it. I mean, you saw a lot of, what, teenage crack millionaires. I mean, you must have... You know, it, you, know you see these guys, in retrospect, you thought they had a lot of money. Some of them did, but a lot of them really didn't. When you begin to look at salaries now, you know, think about growing up in the hood and someone got $100,000. Oh, man, they got a lot of money. But is $100,000 really a lot of money, right? <laughs> not a family. That's right. You gotta, no, it's not. And you begin to take a, another look at it, they were being paid barely minimum wage. Right. Particularly the guys that were standing on the corners. Right. You know? Right. You know, they, uh, well, I won't go into the economics of it. I started doing the economics. I'm like... That was crazy. We thought they had so much. They really didn't compared to the damage they were doing to our communities. You're growing up in a difficult situation, in a difficult time. How did you get through uh, unscathed? You know, it was funny. Single parent, only child. Uh, I got labeled as one of those kids who supposed to be in school. So if I tried to sell drugs, the dope boys would, would, would jump me, stop me, and then tell my mother, then she do it, right? <laughs> so I, I had that 
you know, it, it was it was it was ghetto reality. Some of us had that protection. I can wear all of the fancy clothes. I can do everything else, but I couldn't do dirt because I was labeled as one of the guys who's supposed to be in school. And if the, the dope boys knew I was trying to do it, the ones who was running stuff, then they they stop it immediately. Not that I tried, and I realized that early on I didn't want to do it. But then the other side of that, I started seeing the other side of the fence. None of the big dope guys, very few, survived. They ended up in jail, they ended up strung out, or they ended up broke. And it became this crazy cycle. It's like, this makes no sense to me. Were you the first in your family to go to college? Absolutely. How'd you get there? One step at a time, right? So I had good mentors, uh, and I still have a, a line of mentors, who at every step they said, you need to do X. And I, I took their advice, and I ended up at HBCU. Best decision I could have made because it was small and intimate, and it helped me recalibrate my worldview. So, so many of us who grow up in that, in that environment, our worldview is so limited. And so I remember going back after my second year, and, and behind the church I grew up in, it's a basketball court, and everybody hung out on a basketball court. And this particular day, I'm back there, glad to be home, and some of my other friends who went to college, we all, we talk about the experience, but the dope boys out there, the neighborhood guys out there. And I remember uh, Earl Hopes walked up, and Earl has since been killed. He said, hey man, welcome home, I got next. Hold this for me and pull out the gun. I said, Earl, I'm not going to hold your gun. <laughs> right? But Earl was one of the guys who always protected me growing up. He was a good seven-plus years older than me. He was known to be a good fighter. And I was like, you're crazy. And at that moment, I was like, this is insanity. Here it is. We're on a basketball court behind a church that most of us grew up in. And here is Earl, who's been a dope boy for as long as I recognize, asked me to hold his gun, only to realize there had been shootouts among another group of folks we all grew up with. I say, let's get out of here. You know, it, it's just insanity, but that was that limited world view. And for them, that 20, 30 block radius was the whole world. And for mm. me, I began to see something different, and I felt bad because I knew all of those talented individuals, some of my friends. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tenderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now 
Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Friends, some of the older guys older than me, they were going to be robbed of that opportunity, and they were talented, smart individuals who were surviving. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of people who ran drug organizations who could have been great managers oh in Fortune 500s. They can count on the dime. They can. They, they knew how to control inventory. They understand supply and demand. They were. They were talented. We'll get back to Derek Johnson in just a second, but I want to give a shout out to longtime supporters of the show, Policy Genius, who want you to remember that you can take care of your family even when you're not here. I mean. Everything that we do is about taking care of our family and making sure we can give them the best we can. But can you sleep well at night, really well, not knowing what would happen to them? God forbid something happened to you. Can you take care of your family after you're gone? That's what life insurance is all about. Taking care of your family when you can't take care of your family. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance online. In two minutes, you can compare quotes and find the best policy for you. When you compare quotes, you save money. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance, and you can do it on your phone. And it's not just about life insurance, they also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So if you're looking for a good reason to buy life insurance, Go to Policy Genius. They make it easy to get the right policy. PolicyGenius.com. You can get quotes and apply in minutes. Do the whole thing on your phone. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance and take care of your family after you're gone. What was the dream for you? You know, it, it, it was fuzzy. I knew I was not going to be there. Right. Uh, I had a sense that I could be successful. Uh, at one point, I thought I could be an engineer, but I didn't like math. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, my, my view was narrow, but I, I had a guy to come to our school, Auto City, who's an engineer who worked for Chrysler, and he talked about his job. I was like, I'm going to do that. Okay? But once I, I, I got to school and I began to kind of move around in small, about 900 students, and everyone on campus said, I'm a, I'm a pre-law major, I'm a pre, uh, pre-med. I knew I didn't want to take math again, so I was not going to do pre-med. So I said, I'm pre-law too. But there was a brother on campus from Detroit in Mississippi who was a lawyer, Shokwe Lamumpa. He would come on campus all the time to play basketball. And I got to know Shokwe. I was like, wow, brother's a lawyer, okay? And then he was organizing at that time the Malcolm X Grassroot Network because that, just before that, it was the Republic of New Africa. And they were reorganized under the brand of MXG. So they would have meetings at the house, and his wife, Nubia, and I would go to the house. And, and we'd have all these people who I didn't know who they were at the time talking about this new organization they were going to organize. And, and I would go because Nubia would cook. And they had a swimming pool, brother. They had a swimming pool in their backyard. I was impressed. And from there, I began to crystallize what was possible. And he was one of many, whether it's Congressman Thompson, that time he wasn't a Congressman, so many others. Being in that environment, in that bubble, as I call it, 
was the most beneficial thing for me. You know, I am glad that we have folks who go to uh, majority white institutions, but for some of us, we need the HBCU experience just so we can recalibrate our worldview and understand what is possible. It does help you recalibrate your worldview, and the folks I know who went to HBCUs feel immense pride about themselves oh, and about their time. I went to Emory, so we were going over oh, yeah. Morehouse and Spelman all the time. Of course, I have friends at Hampton and Howard. So it was just, I see an immense pride in those folks. The folks who went to white institutions have the, the struggle and who am I and racist microaggressions happen and how do I deal with that? Um, but it does seem to me, as somebody who never went to an HBCU, that you are engaging in a fantasy world that you'll never again have, right? You'll never again have an all-black universe like you have at the HBCU. And maybe that's a good thing to have in your college days. But then sometimes it's like, well, you you, you are going to have a mixed universe wherever you go. You know, amazing. I was uh, doing a program with Lonnie Grenier at Harvard Law School, right? I was teaching them undergrad uh, Tougaloo as adjunct. We had developed this class called uh, Policy, Politics, and the Law. And the goal was I would take 10 students. You had to apply to get in a class. And over the uh, winter break for Harvard Law School, Lonnie Grenier would identify five students to send down. And we would staff members of the legislature with the 10 Tougaloo students, two students per member, and one Harvard student. And then in the spring, I'll come and be a guest lecturer for her class. And I can recall a young lady out of Atlanta uh, was in law school. She went to Hampton undergrad. And one of the uh, white students actually grew up in New York. We was having a conversation. She said, why do we need HBCUs? I thought we'd fight against segregation. And Erica said, you know, when I was on Hampton's campus, I had the freedom just to think, just to explore, just to develop my sense of self. But while I'm at uh, Harvard Law School, I'm also carrying additional burden of defending all the questions around mm-hmm. my blackness mm-hmm. and question and the questions around how did I get here? Am I as competent and qualified? So I, she had the balance mm-hmm. between being black and proud and studying and exploring. Mm-hmm. That extra burden is problematic. So why yes. should we have a Wakanda? Yes. Yeah. Why shouldn't yes. we have yes. that four years just to take a reprieve? of the hell we got to walk into to be individuals of, of African descent, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful thing, and be able to build our sense of self. And, and I, would, I would wish that upon anybody mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. everybody got to get reprieved to go prepare for a battle if we are in battle. <laughs> how do you get trained? No, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I, I, get, I mean, I, I could see how... Being away from the microaggressions and the stereotype threat and all the stuff that comes from would allow you to just focus, hopefully, on your academics and yourself. And your community. The beautiful thing about my experience, everybody's experience is not the same. I, I began to get appreciation of black. What does it mean to be black in America? Because if, you, if you're from the low country in South, in South Carolina, that's a whole different experience. Sure. 
if you're from New Orleans and you're Creole, which is a whole different experience if you're from Watts, L.A. And then on that campus, I had an opportunity to explore and understand that. We would have debates around the, the value propositions of being a Pan-Africanist versus a black nationalist versus a member of Nation Islam versus a sellout who's an who's a integrationist with the NAACP. Those are debates. Uh-huh. Uh, I get a sense that you uh, have a deep love and appreciation for blackness and black culture. Uh, th- look, if you don't love yourself, who else will love you? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so, all of our diversity. Yeah. Well, talk about some of the things that you love that mean so much to you and what you love about black culture. Well, you know, it's foundational to the people we take for granted those who sacrifice to create the opportunities that we sit on. I, I used to tell the story about the lunch lady that followed me all the way through law school. Mm-hmm. It was a different person, but they had the same level of care and compassion. So if I was in middle school and I wanted an extra ice cream sandwich and I didn't have another quarter, she'll slip me another ice cream sandwich. If I was in high school and those pizza sandwiches that we used to like, they taste awful now, right? <laughs> I was always get an extra slice some kind of way. When I was in college and I hung out too late and I didn't make it to breakfast but I was hungry, I can go in through the back door and she'll give me something to eat. Or when I was in law school. And it was at the counter, and I didn't have any money at the time. Whatever the case may be, I always got extra. It was the same type of black woman, mostly, who was prideful that I was in that place. And I was respectful. Therefore, she wanted to make sure that I had extra. The, the lady from middle school, she used to call us, they go, my babies. Called all of us her babies. I don't even know if she had kids, but she worked at that school, and she served us lunch. She was probably underpaid doing so, but she was prideful because what we were getting, more than likely, being a woman who migrated from the South, she was denied. Mm, mm. That's what I appreciate about our experience. That pride of community. I see that. I see that especially when I fly, Mm because when you fly, you encounter lots of different people. And I encounter people who I think of as as aunties, people old enough to be my aunt. And they're like, oh, I've seen you on TV. I really like the way you express mm-hmm. yourself. I really like the way. And and to inspire pride in them gives me a great feeling, especially folks who are like, I remember a time when there weren't That's a right. lot of black people on TV. Right. And that you're doing it makes me feel proud. Yes. And I could see folks looking at you like, oh, wow, look at him. He's coming up. We got to make sure that he's... You know, that he's got what he needs. Which is the pressure I feel. I don't feel pressure from people who've accomplished and I'm not impressing them. I feel pressure for those that I don't want to let down. Yes. That I yes. care about. That's the richness of, of being who we are. And if we can respect each other from that space and build from there, there's nothing we can't accomplish. I mean, I feel very tangibly that I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me, literally my parents, but also, you know, everybody, Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. Rosa Parks, everybody, so that I had to do something with my life that would honor them, right? Mm -hmm. And when you feel that tangibly, it's so powerful. Right, right. You know, I remember uh, my wife and I just got married. I tell the story differently when I'm giving a speech, but... I went to a non-convent because her aunt worked there in uh, Magnolia, Mississippi, rural area. Now, why is it a a Catholic church in rural Mississippi is another question. It was a guest speaker, and he was a priest who had done missionary work on the continent. 
I don't recall what country, I don't remember what village he said it was in, but they would greet each other with a local word, and he asked the village elder, I'm noticing people are greeting each other with this word, what does it mean? And the village elder say, well, translated to your languages, I see the Christ in you. I see the Christ in you. I see the Christ in you, uh-huh. right? Namaskar is what, right? And with that, he began to build his conversation around that if we see the power in each other, and we work as a community, that's nothing we cannot do. So I oftentimes reject this egocentric leadership model because it's disempowering. Is when everybody's looking for that person, where if Martin Luther King was here, he would do X. So we would, should not look for the, the singular, iconic... Who's the white leader? But they don't have a community the way we have a community. Who's the Jewish leader? They have a community where we have a they community, do. right? They, do. they right? do. We have to get away from egocentric leadership models and come to the community-centric leadership model. For me, the greatest civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, he, understand, he understood that. He talked about in order to form a movement, we got to organize the proletariat, the workers. And if you empower the workers, then you can get a movement. And if you watch and, and study his career from the 30s all the way through to his death, it was his infrastructure that really fueled the conversation. When Emmett Till was killed, it was NAACP infrastructure, Mega Evers and, and, and MZ Moore, who did, the, did uh, necessarily the, uh, the investigation. But when they got the documents, they gave it to the Pullman Porters, who took it to the Chicago Defender and Jet Magazine. And that's how we know of that, what took mm-hmm. place. Yes. Right? That's not about an individual personality or big speech. That's about the collective whole, mm. the collective consciousness of our experience. You took my question to a far deeper place than I had. Well, keep up, keep and up. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. But what I was trying to get toward the president of NAACP, who's your favorite singer? Who's your, what's your favorite oh, movie? You know what I mean? Come on, like, come on. Who's your come rapper? On. Like, you know. So you, what, what, what genre, right? <laughs> I, I can go everywhere from Al Jarreau to Kim. Okay. Right? And I can come right back to Rakim, who's the baddest rapper ever. Okay, thank right? you. I know, I know my son, we had this argument. He loved him some Jay-Z. Can't touch Rakim. Oh, my man, yes. yes you know, yes. Grand Poople, he can't touch that, right? <laughs> okay, okay, right? okay. You know, I love me some Rochelle Pharrell. I can listen to that all day. But uh, what's the sister name of uh, Michelle Day? I can't think of her name all of a sudden. Indigo Cello. Oh, my God. Yes, you know? yes. So yes. there's no such thing as favorite. It is the rainbow. Yes. Of all that art. You know, I can sit and listen to gospel music all day long from Yolanda Adams to the Christian Airs and then go right over and, and, and be rocking on Eric being Rakim. Yes, yes. All yes. of that is embodied in our experience. What about some of your favorite movies? Oh, man. Uh, you know, when, when School Days came out, mm-hmm. you know, that was, that felt That good. reminded you, uh, yeah, that movie took you there. Mm-hmm. It really made you feel like that HBCU experience. Well, uh, uh, Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Just that experience of uh, of just celebrating excellence. Mm-hmm. That you, we can be the uh, the villain and uh, the hero, and all of the parts in between, and it's beautiful. Well, that was powerful because the villain was he really a villain outside of wanting to kill a lot of people. I'm with him entirely. I say the villain was the brother, the white boy who was trying to steal. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay. Yes, of course. Because the person who people say the villain, he was actually a victim 
yeah. of a bad circumstance. Yeah. Right? A circumstance of his father being taken from him and left abandoned in a reality where the public policy didn't support his development, and he was bitter, and he was enraged, and he felt abandoned. But, of, of course, you would agree that Wakanda should take their resources and help the diaspora and not hide. Well, I don't think they were hiding. They were protecting. And there was a turning point where he really showed that, no, we have some talent here we can protect and we can share. Yeah. And that that's important. But, you know, we got to create our Wakanda. We got to create. What's the secret sauce? <laughs> yeah, we got to get some vibranium. Yeah. We're going to talk about Wakanda as a real place. That's right. Um, what's your superpower? Love. Love in my community. Being able to have the level of compassion to see beyond individual and my own deficits. And with that capacity, still work for the greater good. You remind me of the people I have known who are deeply shaped by the church experience and the the love and the compassion you talk about, but also the sort of intellectual discourse that you get in a good church. Is that bedrock for you? It is bedrock. You know, if if you don't love the people, you'll betray the people. You know, I remember Shokwe saying that a lot. Uh, Foundational to that, uh, one of my professors who's still my mentor, Dr. Safiel Mari, she talked about there's, there's the concept that Naeem Akbar advanced around collective consciousness. We have to be conscious collectively on how we, we protect each other. And then you look at uh, Kwame Toure, Stokely Carmichael, and he talked about no matter where you are, organized, 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 because as a people, if we're organized, we can support each other. Mm-hmm. All of those things come together. My experience on that small HBCU campus was really, really fed by these voices who will be on campus. Every year, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Toure, will come back to campus because when he left Howard and came down as a SNCC activist, it was on Tougaloo's campus that he began to formulate and crystallize the concepts of black power that he and Willie Rick began to talk about on that march in Mississippi. All of these voices will come there, and I began to say, wait a minute, we all have vehicles we choose to display our love for community, whether it's through black nationalism or pan-Africanism or NACP or the black church. The real question is, are we doing it because we love our neighbor and we're working for our neighbor, or are we doing it to feed our ego? I choose to do it for the neighbor. Thanks to Derek Johnson for a great interview, and thank you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Tyrese Hester with help from Candid Nicole and our photographer Chuck Marcus. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. I love going to the barbershop to get a fresh cut. You feel like the best you, your confidence skyrockets, and you're ready to take on anything. 
You can have that feeling every day for less than 99 cents a day with Scotch Porter. They've got the best assortment of beard, face, hair, body, and shave products that give you that fresh out of the barbershop, pampered, confident feel. I've been using this stuff and it's fantastic. Look smart, get clean, and be sharp with your first box for free. Just pay shipping. Head to scotchporter.com slash Torre. That's S-C-O-T-C-H-P-O-R-T-E-R.com slash Torre. T-O-U-R-E. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.